In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, where I would like to read three verses of the words that Paul spoke to the elders at the church of Ephesus the last time he saw them. His words to them extend from the 17th verse of this 20th chapter through the 35th, but I'm just going to read three to you. Acts chapter 20, 29 through 31. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. Amen and amen. This is our beloved brother Paul's warning to these elders at Ephesus of what would take place in the churches of Christ, further described in his final warning to Timothy about the rise of the perilous times in the last days when men would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables. And I want to address a particular form of false doctrine that is around us. It's not among us, so no one needs to be speculating about something that isn't true. That is not the purpose I'm preaching this at all. Having some things in common with the Reformed Baptists, we are sometimes confused with them. Having recently been marked as heretics by some Reformed Baptists, I felt it appropriate for us to identify our differences. We pursued a similar study 25 years ago, in 1986, identifying our differences from the primitive Baptists. It is our holy and solemn duty to identify heresy and name names to protect the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God from false doctrine, teachers, and churches. The Bible gives us many warnings to that end. We could look at Romans 16, 17, where it says, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. And it goes on to describe the character of those people that use pleasant and good words to deceive the simple. There are other verses that say the same thing as we proceed through the New Testament. We're told, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Whether Reformed Baptists or any other group of Baptists or any other religious set of people approve of us or not does not matter to us. Since you're in the book of Acts, and you were, if you were to turn to the 24th chapter, we can see our apostle's attitude, and we want to follow him. The apostle Paul said, Be ye followers of me as I follow Christ. He said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. In Acts chapter 24, we have a statement that he made that I wish to read to you. Verse 14. 
But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. They can call us heretics, they can call our doctrine heresy, but all we're going to do is stand on Scripture and we don't care about their little names. And we've been called names in the last couple of weeks, and people have been warned not to attend to our preaching. And so I thought it appropriate for us to be established in some of the differences that we have with Reformed Baptists. We are not passing judgment about any individual Reformed Baptist church, as they do vary from church to church and very widely across the spectrum of all Reformed Baptist churches. We are not passing judgment about any individual person's eternal destiny, since they stand before God, and since we, above all people, recognize the point of truth in Scripture, that it is not the amount of truth you believe or don't believe that determines your eternal destiny. Due to general ignorance of Bible terms, our use of heresy or heretic does not imply the eternal destiny of any, but rather identifies a doctrine or practice as being contrary to what the Bible teaches. That's all the word heresy means. A doctrine contrary or teaching contrary to what the Bible teaches. A heretic is someone who holds doctrine or teaching contrary to what the Bible teaches. It doesn't say a thing about whether they're going to heaven or hell. Heaven's going to be filled with lots of heretics who were in heresy on various points of doctrine. Until we get there, we won't know what heretical points of doctrine we're holding. We hope none. But we also know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Reformed Baptist church members may often be godly and spiritually minded Christians and very nice people. But we do not measure doctrine or practical matters by such measures. Harsh things we must say about Rome and or her daughters are by Bible authority and necessity. And we may not be saying those same things about Reformed Baptists except by their chosen connection to them. We can't help that. They picked their name. We didn't. So if we're ripping and snorting against Rome and her harlot daughters as described in Revelation chapter 17, 1 through 6, and it sounds like we've tossed the Reformed Baptists into the same basket, that's because you've chosen the name that's on the basket. Even though we know that there are differences from them in some respects. This will be a very skeletal synopsis of the situation. Much more could be said or studied by inquirers that want to look into other aspects of our differences or into the ones that I'm going to mention in a more detailed fashion. I want to cover this in one lesson. Since we've carefully defined these conditions in terms of what I'm about to say, hearers shouldn't overreact to individual words or statements like the scorners that God hates in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 20 and 21, and make me an offender for a word. I've already laid out the ground rules. I've already said I'm not saying anything about the eternal destiny of Reformed Baptists. And I've already said if we're blasting Rome and her daughters like we must, if we're going to preach Scripture faithfully, and it sounds like there's some fallout on the Reformed Baptists, that's their fault, not ours. We didn't want to get cozy and hug the Roman Catholic Church and her daughters like they have. 
We want to be as dogmatic and critical as God expects, but we don't want to go any further. We're going to be accused of nitpicking, but true knowledge requires strict definitions. Learning requires defining of terms and doing that well and thoroughly. And we also know that Jehovah is a God of details. Just ask Cain, or Moses, or Nadab, and Abihu, or David, or King Uzzah. Our God is a God of details, and so are we. Who are we to sit in judgment of so-called great men like Martin Luther and John Calvin? Who are we to sit in judgment and to criticize them this day? We are babes of the Lord Jesus Christ who keep His commandments. Look at Matthew chapter 11, and we shall not back off of being the babes of the Lord Jesus Christ and in His authority and by His name and with His word, we shall proceed forward and we do not care who stands in our way with the sword of the Spirit in our hand. We shall hew anyone that is contrary to the word of God. Those names mean nothing to us. They mean nothing to Elihu. They mean nothing to any godly men. They are but men. And they weren't even Christians when defined biblically. They were never baptized and never ordained. More on that and do not turn the tape off or the MP3 recording because of what I just said. I wish I'd have waited 15 or 30 more minutes before I said that. We know who we are. We're the babes of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the off-scouring of the earth along with the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the poor. We are the weak. We are the base. We are the foolish things of this world that God has chosen to bring to naught the things that are. In Matthew chapter 11, the Lord Jesus Christ blessed and praised Almighty God in heaven by saying these words in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. This is why we take the position that we do this day against so-called great men. Turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 119 and let us see the spirit of the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was a shepherd of sheep. He was so poorly known even in his own family, that when Samuel visited Bethlehem to anoint the next king of Israel, his father and his brothers forgot him for a time until Samuel confronted them as to whether they might have one more brother somewhere. But here's what he had to say about the so-called great men of the world and the great men of anything. You can call it the church if you wish, but we don't believe that they were ever members of the church either. Right. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how love I thy law. And that's where we stand today. That's what we love. And if the Reformed Baptists want to love it with us and turn unto it more perfectly, we'll rejoice with them. And together, we'll fall before the Lord Jesus Christ, tell Him that we are His babes, and pray with Solomon that He might give us wisdom and understanding in following His Scriptures perfectly. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, 
has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Because David had God's commandments always with him, he was wiser than his enemies. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Verse 100, I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. We are not ashamed to say that because we have the word of God, the more sure word of prophecy that has opened our eyes to the truth, and we have tried to take heed unto that light that shineth in a dark place, we know more than Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and the others that were so-called great men of the Protestant Reformation. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Before we leave that chapter, we can't leave that chapter yet. We need a theme verse of our church. It's verse 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. We can go nowhere else but with our brother David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we esteem whatever God has spoken and written on every subject to be absolutely right and true, and we hate every contrary opinion as a false way. Turn now to Revelation chapter 12. I said, in answer to the question, who are we to sit in judgment of so-called great men like Martin Luther and John Calvin? I said, we are the babes of the Lord Jesus Christ that keep His commandments. Now let me show you how important that is from this text. I hope you've already seen it in Matthew chapter 11 and Psalm 119. But here we go in a description of the persecuted church of the Dark Ages. The woman. The church is described as a woman in the Bible because she's the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. When there is a woman pretending to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not his bride, she is described as a whore. Gospel preaching is to present the bride of Jesus Christ as a chaste virgin to him. False teachers lead churches astray as whores. And there's a great whore in chapter 17 of this same book. The first six verses describe her. It is the Roman Catholic Church. She is said to be the mother of abominations because she is the source of most false doctrines in Christian churches, so-called Christian churches, and she is the mother of harlots as well. That means little false churches somewhat like her. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12, speaking of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't have more time. You're you're going to be disappointed at some points because we have to keep hurrying. There's so much to cover. And the dragon was wroth with the woman. The dragon is the serpent. The devil, Satan himself, was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We don't care if the devil wants to wage war against us. We're just the babes of the Lord Jesus Christ, which keep his commandments. And by having his commandments in the written form of his Bible, we can be wiser than our enemies, we can have more understanding than our teachers, and we can understand more than the ancients, and that's where we stand. Amen. In ourselves, by nature, we are as the children of wrath, Ephesians 2 and verse 3. In ourselves, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But we have the word of God and we shall not apologize for it. Who are we to sit in judgment on another brand of Baptists? 
with whom we could unite to oppose the unbelieving pagans and lies of this profane world? The world's lunacy is no threat to Christianity. It's the counterfeits that get closest to the truth that are the most dangerous. And that's why we take up the Reformed Baptists. There's a whole bunch of liberal Baptists that deny the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood atonement for the redemption of our sins, the virgin birth, that have women and lesbian preachers in various places. We're not dealing with those kind of Baptists. No one in this church would ever be tempted by those kind of Baptists. We wouldn't even engage one of those Baptists in a conversation. We're talking about Baptists that are closer to the truth, and therefore they are more subtly dangerous to the children of God. And we want to point out some of our differences with them. We are the true worshipers of God that worship in spirit and in truth. All we have to do to fulfill that is to worship in spirit and in truth. An internal form of religion based on the word of God. Just as Jesus explained to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. There are Baptist churches that will vote today to remove the word Baptist and or the word church from their name. To remove any hint of doctrinal distinction that would separate them from other churches. We shall define such differences that we have with a group of Baptists. Brethren, I do not know how much you understand what is going on around us. But Baptists who were once unapologetic for being Baptists and for the truth of the Bible are now compromising on every side, changing their name, wanting to remove the word Baptist because it's too doctrinal. It sounds too dogmatic. And then oftentimes even taking away the word church from their name because it sounds too religious. It sounds too churchy. I was reading again last night about that largest Baptist church in Michigan, the state I'm from, Temple Baptist Church of Redford, Michigan, moving out to the Northville area and changing its name to Northridge. From Temple Baptist Church, it's now Northridge. And its pastor said in the article which I was reading, We want to have a mall of spiritual opportunity. And uh, that ranges from Starbucks to rock and roll concerts in the name of Jesus, of course. But while churches today are voting to take away the word Baptist and the word church out of their name, we're here saying we're Baptists and we're the church of Jesus Christ. And you better not be lined up with the Reformed or you're neither. And that's where we're headed. Lord, have mercy upon us and bless us. The name, the name of Reformed Baptists. You know, church names are extra scriptural and lead to confusion, false association, superstition, and tradition, which is why our church is named simply for its location like those in the New Testament. There is no name of a church in the New Testament. They're called the churches of God, the churches of Christ, possessively, because God and Jesus Christ owned them. But when they are described individually by their unique names, they are the churches of Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church of Jerusalem, and so forth. And so we are the church of Greenville. We don't want to attack adjectives onto our name or nouns in our name that would lead people astray or associate us with doctrines that we don't hold ourselves. 
Many simple Christians today would not know what is meant by the word reformed. When we look at the combination of words, reformed Baptist, they would want to know, what does that mean? Does it describe alterations or changes that these people are trying to make to Baptists? Reformed Baptists. Have they changed what it means to be a Baptist because they're reformed Baptists? Does it describe bad Baptists that may have been in a detention home that were made good by reforming their manners? Because they're called Reformed Baptists. Many simple Christians would not know what the word Reformed means. In soteriological, soteriological terms, that is a crazy term devised by seminarians to justify their position over you. But you don't need to worry about it. All it means is pertaining to the doctrine of salvation. When we say the word theology, that's the science or the knowledge of God. Soteriology is the science or knowledge of salvation. Ecclesiology is the science or knowledge of the church. Eschatology is the science or knowledge of future things. And you can go on and on and make up all these terms, which most professions do to try to justify their existence and high salaries for really not knowing much at all. So if I ever use that word again, all I mean is the doctrine of salvation. Regarding the doctrine of salvation, the term reformed describes the Calvinistic scheme of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, an acrostic or acronym, and the covenantal sacramental system of churches from the Reformation. Dutch Reformed, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican, Christian Reformed, Netherland Reformed. When when the word Reformed is used, it means we are referring to a body of truth that came out of the Protestant Reformation that involves God's sovereignty and the salvation of men, most simply represented by TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, and a covenant form of salvation that extends to a believer's children and a sacramental system of salvation that involves ordinances of the church with sacramental value from the church of Rome. That's what reformed means. So when I say Lutheran and Presbyterian and Dutch reformed and Christian reformed and Protestant reformed and Netherland reformed and reformed and... I'm referring to tulip, covenant salvation, and sacramental salvation. That's what the the word reformed means. We came from the reformers that were reforming the Roman Catholic Church, and these are the main points of the doctrine they held, and that's what we mean by the word reformed. Free will Baptists also attach an adjective for doctrinal definition to their name, which Reformed Baptists would not mind taking them to task for, even though they're a group of Baptists. There's free will Baptists and there's Reformed Baptists, and they don't like each other very much. One's Calvinistic, one's Arminian. That's why we, we try to stay away from words like that. We don't want to be attached or associated with either one. We want to be Bible Baptists. We want to be Bible Christians. We want to be Baptists in the sense and tradition of John the Baptist, Jesus, and his apostles. 
but not the Southern Baptist Convention, not the General Association of Regular Baptists, not the Primitive Baptists, and not the Reformed Baptists. The date of the first Reformed Baptist Church, by name, is hard to find. I have no idea. I, I would say it, it's not more than 75 years old that there was a church that attached the word Reformed to the word Baptist to give themselves a church name. Now, modern Reformed Baptists will go back and say that the particular Baptists of England of the 17th century, that means the 1600s, were Reformed Baptists, but that's because they're revising history from the 21st century. They may have been Reformed in certain respects, but they also knew that they had brethren that were being killed by the Reformers. And they would not have taken kindly to that name being attached to them because they were suffering persecution at the hands of the Reformed churches and the Reformed leaders. In the simplest terms, Reformed Baptists are those holding believers' baptism, like we do, that want to be associated with the five points of Calvinism. That's the simplest explanation. Prior to the Reformed Baptists, and Baptist churches like them, many felt that they had to choose. If I really believe in believer's baptism, then I've got to be a Baptist. But as I read the Bible, I find that election and predestination are taught there. I'm tempted to join the Presbyterians, because they're the only ones I know that preach election and predestination. So they had this dilemma of what to do. Of course there were alternatives if they had looked a little further than the established churches. Primitive Baptists being an option for them. Sovereign Grace Baptists being an option for them. Regular Baptists, separate Baptists being an option for them. But that's been a dilemma in people's minds that don't know very much. Well, I don't know whether to be a Baptist or a Presbyterian because I believe in believer's baptism, but I also believe in election and predestination, so where do I go? Well, thank the Lord, you can come here. Amen. We believe in both and a whole lot more. Right. And so do the Reformed Baptists when we're using that simple of a definition. Thankfully, the Reformed Baptists are a reaction against the Arminian excesses of the last hundred years that have resulted in a resurgence of interest in the doctrines of grace. If you see the words, the doctrines of grace, it refers to the five points of Calvinism, or TULIP. Calvin never really wrote down T-U-L-I-P for a daily devotional and laid them out that way. The, the, The five points of Calvinism were actually originated by the Arminians in a controversy that took place in Holland, And it forced the two camps, those following God's sovereignty and salvation and those following Jacobus Arminius, to formulate five points. And that's where it came from most formally. But it's just given the title of Calvinism, meaning God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. And let's go over it one more time. Tulip. T. Total depravity. U. Unconditional election. L, limited atonement, Jesus died for the elect only. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. Remember, we have a sermon series done on Calvinism, 
Arminianism and the truth that explains where we stand relative to both systems and their respective five points. Many of those in the last few decades that have rejected the intellectually bankrupt doctrine and practice of Arminian churches have chosen instead the intellectually superior name and doctrine of Reformed churches. Because if you are part of a Reformed church, you have a persona or you have a perceived superiority intellectually. Because from an intellectual standpoint of thorough reasoning and logical reasoning, the Reformed faith annihilates Arminians. Arminians are intellectually bankrupt. I mean, they don't know top from bottom in the Bible. All they can do is quote John 3.16. I mean, there's 31,101 verses in the Bible. They don't have a clue about the character or nature of God. All they can quote is that one verse. They'll say it's the gospel in a nutshell. They'll say it's all I need to know from the Bible because they're so bankrupt intellectually. At least the Reformers read more than John 3.16. At least the Reformers knew about the character of God, that He was sovereign and He didn't love all men. They understood that because the whole Bible teaches it. But I need to stop there on that particular point. This is where they came from. And so in recent years, there's been this resurgence of interest in the doctrines of grace because Billy Graham and the rest of the Arminian excesses have gone to such extremes The decisional regeneration has reached a point where now they're having fights and arguments about lordship salvation, meaning, do do I have to say the word Lord in order to get saved? And the other half are saying, if you say the word Lord, you're not saved when you invite Jesus into your heart because you're being a legalist. Do you know how far down that's... Do you know how deep that is in the morass of human ignorance? There's lots of Reformed Baptists all over the place, and they have associations that you can look up on the Internet and easily look at what they claim to believe. There's many other Sovereign Grace or Calvinistic Baptist churches that reject that name. They hold just as tenaciously to unconditional election and particular redemption, meaning Jesus died only for the elect, but they reject the other doctrines, practices, and stigma implied by the word Reformed. So they're Sovereign Grace Baptist churches. Sometimes they go by the name of Landmark Baptist churches or even Missionary Baptist churches, but they will still be Sovereign Grace in orientation, five-point Calvinists as defined by a Reformed Baptist, but they don't want anything to do with the word Reformed because they know that coming with that word Reformed are associations and a stigma that they do not want and they entirely reject. They can't stand baby sprinklers. They don't want to be in association with baby sprinklers. They don't want to shoulder up to baby sprinklers that have come out of the Roman Catholic Church. So they refuse the name. There's a whole lot of churches with, well, let's not say, there's quite a few. Within the Southern Baptist Convention, it's called the Founders Movement of the last 20 years or so, where there are churches within the Southern Baptist Convention that decided not to leave that hold the five points of Calvinism as well. The name connection. Now, if they just had that Reformed Baptist, we would wonder, were they from a Reformed school? Did they change what Baptists believe? We, you know, we could allow the name, possibly. 
But it's the connection of the name that bothers us and where we have to take a stand. Reformed Baptists choose the name for one or more of these five reasons. To identify themselves with the reformers of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, which they consider a great work of God, and especially a couple of men named Martin Luther and John Calvin. That's one reason. To associate themselves with the Protestant Reformation and the so-called great men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, so they call themselves Reformed Baptists. These are not in order. It's just some combination of these, and every Reformed Baptist church is different. To identify themselves with Reformed Doctrine of Salvation, or Soteriology, in TULIP, the five points of Calvinism. They want to identify that in our church, we're a Baptist church, but we're a Baptist church that holds the five points of Calvinism, so we're called Reformed Baptists. They want to identify with the 1689 London Confession of Faith of a 100 Baptist churches that was written in that year, which was copied in 1742 by the Philadelphia Association of Baptist Churches, which was in most part a copy of the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646. You don't need to memorize any of this. But they want to associate themselves with a particular confession of faith, and they believe when they do, they might as well call themselves Reformed, because the Baptists copied it from the Presbyterians who were Reformed. Fourth reason, to identify with the five solas. This is a Latin expression associated with the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, meaning by Scripture alone. Sola Fide, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. You know, as soon as I see five Latin phrases, I start to get the willies. Uh, seriously. Now, now I'm simple. But when people start to use little Latin phrases, I get nervous. I mean, I'm waiting for the sixth one to be hocus corpus meum, straight from the Roman altar. Why in the world are they using little Latin phrases like that? If they're Baptists. Why would Baptists want to be associated with those? Because they sound cool and they sound really orthodox. And they sound like real champions of the faith. Sola fide. Faith only. Faith only is a heresy. James chapter 2 condemns faith only. And that's why Martin Luther hated that epistle. He said it's an epistle of straw. He tried to remove it from the Bible. He attacked its canonicity. All in the name of he was a champion of justification by faith alone. But the Bible says in James chapter 2, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Sola fide is wrong. You know, coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, he might have thought it was right, but that's why he couldn't reconcile it with the book of James. I am so thankful, and I've said this recently, and it's so true. Let me tell you, it's different to stand in a pulpit and preach than it was 20 years ago. When I say something like that, you are able to go home into a Google search box and type in Martin Luther, James, Epistle, Straw. And you can read for the next two hours. I remember when Jonathan Carnell wrote his senior paper at a local Christian school about Martin Luther attacking the authenticity and canonicity of the epistle of James. We didn't have as much to go on then. But we're getting older now, son. 
And there's more information out there now, and it's all easily accessible by Google algorithms. Praise the Lord. Anyone can go check out any point of truth and find out what a man Martin Luther was like and what Martin Luther thought of Baptists. Sola Scriptura. Really? We'll find out in just a moment. That's why they choose the name. Reformed Baptists. Why they want to be called Reformed Baptists? They want to identify themselves with the Reformation, with the five points of Calvinism, with the 1689 London Confession of Faith, which is a pure Calvinistic document, to identify with the five solas, and to identify their efforts to reform Baptist doctrine and recover lost truth from the Arminian excesses of the last hundred years. We are Baptists and want no such name connection with the Reformation in any way. Reformed Baptist is an oxymoron. And the last part of that word is just what you think it means. Morons. Oxymoron is a rhetorical figure of speech of combining two contradictory terms. Reformed and Baptist do not go together. It's a combination of contradictory terms, and it really irritates us. Those two words don't belong together. The majority of Reformed churches today... True Reformed churches still maintaining their original and creedal convictions deny the combination of their adjective with Baptist. They do not accept Reformed Baptists because they know what Reformed means and they know what Baptist means. And they understand the majority of Reformed churches do not recognize and admit Reformed Baptists as Reformed. Because they know Reformed means covenantal covenant salvation of a family and children by the parents' faith and a sacramental system of salvation as well, and they know Baptists don't hold to that. They know it's an oxymoron. Reformed Baptists equals either deformed Reformed or deformed Baptists because you can't have Reformed and Baptists together because you've got to deform one or the other of those two words. You've got to deform the Reformed, or you've got to deform Baptists in order for them to fit together. Baptists were not part of the Reformation. They existed before it and outside it. And they were persecuted and even killed by most of the Reformers. And I am going to provide sufficient links, maybe extensive links, but sufficient links to prove the point about specific historical events where the Reformers killed Baptists and did it with glee. They despised and ridiculed Baptists. They considered us a simple people that had no ability or right to interpret the Scriptures because you know that simple Baptist men, whether farmers and or peasants of Germany or, or watchmakers or shoemakers in Switzerland, would defy the Roman Catholic Church and these so-called great men coming out of it on the doctrine of baptism and just ridicule infant baptism. There isn't a single thing in the New Testament about infant baptism, and an honest Reformed man will tell you that. There isn't one thing there. And if it wasn't for the covenant of circumcision made with Abraham, they wouldn't have a leg to stand on. Because circumcision was the initiating rite into the covenant with Abraham, then there must be a corresponding initiating rite into the covenant under the New Testament. Therefore, we're going to conclude that baptism replaces circumcision. 
Now that's called in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Beware, lest any man deceive you with vain deceit and philosophy. Baptists were not part of the Reformation. We had nothing to reform. We were never part of the Roman Catholic Church. We understood who she was. She was by divine appointment to be an enemy of the churches of Jesus Christ. We never was part of her. We never protested against her. So Baptists were never Protestants. They weren't in her protesting about what she was doing because we were always outside of her and knew that everything there was about her was corrupt. She was the whole of every foul bird as Revelation chapter 18 describes her. They knew her abominations were by divine prophecy from Daniel chapter 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and Revelation chapters 12, 13, 17, and so forth. Baptists have never and would never credit the Roman Catholic Church as ever being a true church. For they knew her to be the great whore and the mother of harlot churches, just as Revelation 17 describes her. Baptists have never and would never credit Roman Catholic baptisms or ordinations as valid. Do you know what that means? It means that Martin Luther and John Calvin were never baptized or ordained. And that's why I said earlier, how can we call them Christians? When we say the word Christian, that doesn't mean a person going to heaven. When we say the word Christian, we mean a disciple that is following the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. So when we say John Calvin and Martin Luther couldn't be Christians because they were never baptized as followers of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther was baptized the day after he was born in the Roman Catholic Church. He was never rebaptized. Do you think he went to some Baptist preacher in 1517, the day after he put his 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and said, Baptist preacher, would you immerse me in your baptistry? Think again. I will tell you this about Martin Luther. When he was studying his Bible on his own and coming to some of his own conclusions, he believed in immersion for a short period of time, around 1517. He said immersion has to be and is the ancient mode of baptism of the apostles in the New Testament. But boy, you take that to press, and you take that to meet other monks, and you take that to meet other classically trained lawyers and churchmen, and they're going to tear you to shreds about what an idiot and imbecile you are like they've done Baptists for 2,000 years. And so he changed on the mode of baptism. The Reformation and the Reformers despised, ridiculed, and persecuted Baptists. The great Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, did not come clear of Rome in many respects. For she had brainwashed them, and they would not bow to Baptist simplicity. They would not humble themselves to be made fools for the cause of Jesus Christ. To be a Baptist, you had to be a fool in the world, and to be a Baptist today, you need to be a fool in the world. When we go into a pool of water, we find much water like in Anan near to Salem, John chapter 3 and verse 23, we become fools for Jesus' sake. It's a mark and it's a test. It, it separates us from the rest of the world because we're willing to do that. The reformers did not well understand Sola Scriptura, as they held some of the magisterium authority of the Roman Catholic Church in which they were trained. And today they use a variety of versions and translations and contribute to the field of higher criticism. Now all that was to say, 
They love to quote the words, the little Latin phrase, sola scriptura, meaning the Bible alone, scripture alone, only scripture. And yet magisterium, when I use that fancy word, magisterium means that the Roman Catholic Church in its bishops and popes has the final right, ability, and authority to interpret the scripture and you do not. So, when push comes to shove, and you have brought the best Bible arguments you have to a Roman Catholic, and they're looking in their Bible, and they realize that you have their arm behind their back, and about to twist it off at the shoulder, they say, the magisterium says that is not what it means. And you're dead in the water. And that's what the reformers would do when they got pushed on baptism. They would say the church has the right to interpret, and you are misinterpreting the New Testament scriptures. They did not, they hated that magisterium when they were fighting Rome. But when they were fighting Baptists, they would use it because they needed it. Because there is no evidence in the New Testament whatsoever for infant baptism. Now I've said some things about Luther and Calvin, and I want to say this. Martin Luther and John Calvin cannot be heroes for Baptist children. As they were heretics on numerous counts, were never baptized, and hated and persecuted Baptists. They should not be set forth as heroes for Baptist children. Amen. You want to set forth a Baptist hero? Then let them read about John Bunyan, who spent 12 years in prison under the reign of the king that gave us our King James Bible for being a Baptist preacher. Read John Bunyan. Pilgrim's Progress. His deathbed sermon. John 1.13 Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pick our heroes from men that weren't known heretics on numerous points, that were Baptists, and that didn't hate and persecute Baptists. It's a shame what's been done in so many Baptist circles. Martin Luther believed in baptismal regeneration. You saved the baby when you poured the water on their head. Martin Luther believed in consubstantiation. That along with the bread, there was the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. Hello? That's not even close to Bible doctrine. That's heresy. That's blasphemy. That's idolatry. The Reformers did not well understand sola fide, as the Bible condemns such a notion in James chapter 2, and by your response a few minutes ago, I believe you understand that which caused Martin Luther to ridicule that inspired epistle. Let me quote the words again. Ye see then, how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. What does that do to sola fide? We hang with James. You you Reformed Baptists can hang with Martin Luther, and your sola fide in Latin. Make sure that you also learn hocus corpus meum to go along with your five solas. But we're going to hang with the epistle of James, first in Greek, now in English. And it's very plain to any who read it, and it was plain enough to Martin Luther that he didn't like it. Because it contradicted his pet little theory of justification by faith only, which we reject. We believe that we were justified in the sight of God before the world began. That's called eternal justification. And our Baptist brethren like John Gill, John Brine, Samuel Richardson all maintained that back in the 17th century and 18th century. We believe that we were justified by Christ at the cross of Calvary. When He said it is finished, we were made accepted in the Beloved. 
we were justified. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We believe that we are given a righteous new nature in regeneration according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. When a new man is implanted in us in regeneration that is created in righteousness and true holiness. So we're justified in a vital sense at the point of regeneration. When we exercise our faith, it is simply the first evidence and the first claim from our part on a subjective basis for the assurance and comfort of our souls. Our position before God hasn't changed a bit any more than it did for Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, which was a number of years after he came out of Ur of the Chaldeans by faith. That great turning point of Genesis 15 and verse 6 is used by the apostle in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. But Abraham standing before God did not change at that point. He was already a man of faith. He was already justified before God before that event. But that particular act of faith on his part to believe God's incredible promise that his seed would be as numerous as the stars which were in heaven was picked out and used by the Lord as an example of the faith of a righteous man. This is the kind of faith that is the evidence of a justified man. I have preached on this point in much, 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 much greater detail at other times, and we don't have time to do that now. And in fact, I am so far behind in time that we're in deep, deep trouble, but we shall just proceed a little further, and then we will have to postpone the rest until some other time. But I want you established in these things. If you are talk to religious people, you are going to hear about sola fide. You're going to hear about sola gracia. And you need to understand what those mean. You need to understand what a Reformed Baptist is. It's a Baptist that wants to believe and, and hold and teach believer's baptism, but also wants to hold and teach the doctrines of Calvinism. And instead of just going that far, they go ahead and add the name or adjective Reformed in their church name, which then associates them with baby-sprinkling, eternal sonship, persecuting, modified Catholics, coming out of the Protestant Reformation. And that's the error of their name and its connections. The Reformers did not well understand sola gratia, for they maintained sacraments brought over from Rome that defy grace according to the word of Paul. If Martin Luther believed and taught, which he did, that a baby was regenerated and born again and made a child of God and a member of the church at his infant baptism... That's sacramental salvation. It's not grace only. So sola gratia is dropped. They've already violated it in the teaching of Martin Luther on baptism. We reject two points of the Reformed doctrine of salvation represented by Tulip. Remember, here's the third time. T for total depravity. We agree. Man is born totally depraved. And in his natural state that he is born in by his first two parents, the preaching of the gospel is to him foolishness. Neither can he know it because it's spiritually discerned and there's nothing spiritual in him. He is dead in trespasses and sins and following the course of this world. We believe in total depravity. Number two, unconditional election. We believe 
in unconditional election, because when God looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after Him, He found none. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So we believe in unconditional election. When God elected men, He did not elect them because He foresaw something good that they would do, and therefore He elected them to salvation because they were going to invite Jesus into their heart, like Arminians might say, in a scheme of conditional election, we believe that when God looked down, He saw none, and if He hadn't elected unconditionally, none would be elected and none would be saved. L, limited atonement. Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. Jesus loved the church and gave Himself for it. Jesus died a particular death for those that God gave Him. That's what limited atonement means. Limited atonement to us does not mean that the atonement is limited in power, but it's limited in design. It was only intended for the elect. The Arminians truly have the doctrine of limited atonement, for their atonement does not save anyone. It wasn't limited in design. It was designed for everyone, but it was insufficient to save but a few. And it really didn't save anyone at all, because they actually saved themselves. Their atonement is the one that's limited. It couldn't get anyone saved. Because most of those that Jesus Christ died for, according to the Arminian scheme, will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Now how's that for a limited atonement? They like to ridicule us for the words, limited atonement. Ours is not limited in power or efficacy. It's limited only in application and design. And it was called particular redemption, meaning Jesus died to redeem a particular people from their sins. And so in the 17th century, our fathers were called particular Baptists against general Baptists, which means for particular Baptists that Jesus died a particular death for the elect only. And the general Baptists, Jesus died generally for all men. And that was the division in England. And that was the division in the early days of the United States between general Baptists and particular Baptists. So far, we agree with the Calvinists. Total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement. When we come to irresistible grace, we separate from them. And Reformed Baptist brethren that might be listening to this, we wish that you would look at our document, Calvinism, Arminianism, and the Truth, to understand and to think about these next two points. When the Calvinist says irresistible grace, he is applying God's power through the Holy Ghost in the matter of conversion. We do not believe that God's power through the Holy Ghost is irresistible in the matter of conversion. That men resist the Holy Ghost in conversion throughout their lives. But it is irresistible in the matter of regeneration. If, If a Calvinist were to limit irresistible grace to the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating a dead sinner, we would say we agree with the Calvinist. But that is not how they define irresistible grace. Their irresistible grace extends to the work of conversion. And whether it was Israel under the Old Testament or Christians in the New Testament, they, they're in heresy. They can, they can oppose the ministry. The minister himself can leave true doctrine for false doctrine. They can resist the Holy Ghost and the Bible calls it resisting the Holy Ghost. Like when Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, he said, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost in the matter of conversion, but in the matter of regeneration, there is no resisting. And so we separate from Calvinists on the eye of tulip because we believe that irresistible grace applies to regeneration 
not conversion. God has not guaranteed the complete conversion of all His elect. They will be converted in varying degrees from Abraham to Lot, from David to Samson, from Paul to the Corinthian saints that were cut off in their sins, who were weak, sickly, and dead in the church at Corinth. Fifth point, P in TULIP, perseverance of the saints. We deny with the, that the, where the Calvinists say that God has guaranteed and will powerfully bring about the perseverance of the saints so that none of the elect will ever fall from grace, but will persevere on. And some will go so far as to say as to grow in sanctification and in a holier and holier life. We deny. How much did the Corinthian saints grow in sanctification and go on in holiness when the Lord cut them off for their abuse of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? I love that example because it is explained to us very carefully in the last five to seven verses of that chapter that the Corinthians were not condemned with the world, that they were all in heaven, but that they had lost their lives and were cut off in their foolish, sinful abuse of the Lord's Supper. They were not discerning the Lord's body. They were coming with unconfessed sins. They were eating and drinking before others. Foolish profanation of the Lord's Supper. Yet, they were God's saved people, but cut off early for their wickedness. Just like the whole Bible describes men being cut off for sinning. We don't believe that God is going to cause His elect to persevere. We believe it is their responsibility in conjunction with the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God to labor to persevere, but God hasn't guaranteed it. What He has guaranteed is to preserve His elect. And we believe that there's a great difference between the word preservation and persevere, and if the New Testament were read, the one is supported and the other is not. God will preserve His elect so that not a single one is lost, but He will not guarantee their persevering. We reject those last two points. So this is why we are not Reformed Baptists. Because even on the, the point of them wanting to hold the five points of Calvinism, and while we appreciate their desire to hold the sovereignty of God in salvation, we can't go with them on the I and the P of TULIP. We will oppose Arminianism not by running into the arms of the Reformed churches, but by running to Holy Scripture. Amen. And we'll refute Arminianism there. And God is already proving their insanity as He promised He would in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, where their foolishness and their resisting the truth shall proceed no further as Janus and Jambres resisting the truth of Moses proceeded no further. It's being exposed today as men realize this is a bankrupt system of theology and salvation. What are the great doctrines of the Reformation, the so-called great doctrines of the Reformation, that we want to be associated to by the word Reformed? I thought John, Jesus, and Paul had done a pretty good job in the New Testament. The Reformation promoted baby sprinkling. The Reformation promoted family salvation. Covenant salvation is what they call it. A confused Lord's Supper. Scholarship rather than humility. National churches rivaling the Catholics. Persecution of Baptists. And worship of tradition. Are those the great doctrines of the Reformation? Election and predestination are not doctrines of the Reformation. 
They're doctrines of the New Testament that Baptists had held outside the Protestant Reformation and outside the Church of Rome for 1,500 years. We didn't need the Reformation to bring us those great doctrines. We already had them. And the great doctrines I just listed are what the Reformation did bring us and their heresies. This is all the farther I can go at this time. Let us briefly review this fact. That there are those with good intentions, the most part, have, have taken the name Reformed and attached it to the name Baptist because they understand that believer's baptism is true baptism. It's Bible baptism. It's what was taught by the apostles. And yet, because they are sick of Arminian excess, they have chosen the Reformed faith, meaning the five points of Calvinism, the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin, as the antidote to Arminian excess. And they've melded the two together as Reformed Baptists. We can't go with them. And we're not Reformed Baptists. And you shouldn't be confused about it. And I'm going to slow down and go take whatever time it takes for you to be established in some of the distinctions between us and them. And all we've covered so far is a little bit about salvation and the connection of the name. The name Reformed means we sought the reformation of some aspects of Catholicism. Martin Luther and John Calvin came out of Rome, but they kept much of Rome with them. And the Reformed faith is a daughter church. The Reformed churches are daughter churches. They're called harlot churches. They're not true to the New Testament. The doctrine of baptism being one of the plainest indictments of them. In that they sprinkle or pour water upon the head of an infant. And in some cases, like the Lutherans, say that that is the moment when regeneration occurs, or in some cases, like the Presbyterians, who will always deny that they believe in baptismal regeneration. But if you'll read the Westminster Confession of Faith, they say, it is not at the time of the application of water, but the application of water guarantees the event at some time in the future. So you end up in the same place. The issue being, that's what the Reformed faith is. They were modified Catholics. And just like Revelation 17 describes a great whore with little harlot daughters, she's a whore. That means she's promiscuously unfaithful to the Christ she claims to be married to. She's going to have little churches that come out of her called daughters that were born in the Protestant Reformation that would claim to be faithful to the Christ they're married to, but would also be unfaithful and disloyal and harlots. Those are prostitutes. Because they have prostituted their doctrine to the Catholic Church. Just thinking of baptism is one of them. And there's more than that, which we'll get to as the Lord gives us an opportunity. We have been blessed abundantly, and we have forefathers for 2,000 years from John the Baptist, who didn't care about the authority of the Levites, who didn't care about the law of God regarding the book of Leviticus because he had a call from heaven that told him to go and baptize and to announce the Lord Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, who wasn't from the tribe of Levi, but was a priest after a different order. And he ended priesthood forever. So when you find a church like the Lutherans that still have priests or pastors, or Anglicans that still have priests, 
and you see some of these churches that still want to have an office of a priest, we know that there's one priest forever. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who stands before us in heaven. And if you're going to use priests in a church, we're all kings and priests. Because we've all been made kings and priests by Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. We are very blessed as Baptists. Our fathers laid down their lives to pagan Rome, papal Rome, and the daughters of Rome for the doctrine of baptism. For the doctrine of the Lord's Supper that is purely metaphorical. The Catholics make it literal. This is my body. The Lutherans see a synecdoche. It's my body and the bread. The Presbyterians see a metonym. I've taught you men all of this. A metonym. By the bread, we receive Christ spiritually. We see a metaphor. It is simply symbolic and a figure of our Lord's body and blood. They had state churches, like the Congregationalists in Maine, that drove William Screven to Charleston, South Carolina, which I've taught you in times past. We hate state churches. It was Baptists that were influential in establishing the Bill of Rights to our Constitution. Because Baptists understood if we give other religions and denominations a right to worship freely, we will use that right to worship freely ourselves. And so we have. And we've been blessed abundantly in this country to be able to worship freely without persecution. We appreciate the efforts of the Reformed Baptists to oppose the Arminians. We decry what they have done by choosing the name of our persecutors and the daughters of the great whore, the harlot daughters, and to bring that name into association with the name of Baptist. Lord, have mercy upon them and bring some to repentance. And may the Lord preserve us and keep us consistent, committed, and holding fast His faithful word that He's declared to us and written down in the pages of Scripture. May Jesus Christ be praised.